We can sometimes see things coming. We see uh, somebody with Alzheimer's disease who's having these repetitive behaviors and caregivers who seem to be getting annoyed and address it before it escalates. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and an international presenter on how to respond to dementia behaviors. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Nope, I won't forget your wine. So during our time as caregivers, we dealt with a lot of doctors. And since then, with your speaking engagements and now this podcast, we have been in contact with a number of researchers from around the United States and also around the globe. Yes, absolutely. And it's been a blessing to both us and to our listeners because the more information we can share um, the better off we're all going to be. One thing that I've definitely learned while working in this field as long as I have, the more I know, the more I understand that I, I still need to learn. And that brings us to today's guest, who is the former dean at the Keck School of Medicine and professor of family medicine of USC. She is a physician and geriatrician, researcher, educator, and academic administrator who has a unique perspective that is informed by her extensive experience in the community. She is a widely respected authority on geriatric and family medicine, elder abuse, and care for the elderly and the underserved. Welcome to the show, Dr. Laura Mosqueda. Welcome. Thank you. It's it's a pleasure to be here. And, and I'll mention one of my other, I think, things that gives me a little credibility is that I've been a caregiver, too, for my dear mother, who... Uh, who had a dementing illness. And we're definitely going to hopefully hear more about that. Um, the reason that I specifically reached out to you when I saw that you were involved in um, education about elder abuse. And I know as a family caregiver who's involved with a number of family caregivers and even professional caregivers that nobody goes into this thinking that they will be confronted with or even participate in abusing an, the elderly. But because it's such a stressful thing um, and there are so many challenges, sometimes it does occur. And so I'm hoping that we can discuss today ways to avoid that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think, you know, our big our big push is on prevention um, in understanding when people are kind of getting to that point. There are some people who have either some pathology or other issues going on in their lives that um, you know, that, that really in, necessitates involvement of, of even legal or criminal justice system. That does happen. But, but my extensive experience is the vast majority, um, we have very well-intentioned caregivers who, who need help, who want an opportunity to know when they're stressed and, and they're, it's, is kind of escalating and they're feeling overwhelmed and, and what we can do to help them so that we never get to the point of any kind of abusive behavior. So, you know, for most people, and I will say I am one of them probably uh, front and center, um, when, when I hear the term elder abuse, I tend to think physical abuse. 
And that's not the case, correct? There's a, a number of ways for elder abuse. Could you kind of educate us a little bit more? Well, unfortunately, there's lots of different ways that older adults can be abused. And what we generally see in people who have demanding illnesses is that kind of early on, um, they're more likely to be victimized with things like financial abuse. Um, and I don't just mean scams. I mean, you know, people figuring out ways to, to take their money and, and, um, and, and that they may just not be aware of, of what's going on and have a good understanding. Then often as people get into more of the middle stages of dementia, where they might have, well, let's say aggressive behavior or what people would, would label as problematic behavior is when we tend to see some of the physical abuse that goes on. Um, and unfortunately, sexual assault can happen as well. We often don't think about that, but it, it does occur. Um, and then in the later stages, when people with Alzheimer's and other dementias need more and more care is when we can see neglect. So people who maybe aren't getting appropriate nutrition, hydration, um, and, um, um, and can end up with wounds and sores and, and other kinds of of problems. Um, but you can really see multiple types of abuse occurring throughout the different stages of dementia. And the one that we really see a lot of is emotional uh, abuse. Um, so these often occur simultaneously, what sometimes is called polyvictimization. Now, emotional abuse, that would also include things like isolation and things of that sort? Yes. Um, isolation is absolutely a type of emotional abuse and can also get into neglect as well. And doctor, as, as one who was the primary caregiver for, for my father-in-law, Roger, who had multiple comorbidities, including dementia and schizophrenia and a number of physical, um, I think some of the frustration that might lead to um, abuse of an elderly, emotional abuse is not understanding that they're not pretending, they're not exaggerating. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times it just seemed like he was doing whatever he was doing for the 1500th time just to annoy me. Yeah. Because I didn't understand where, where he was coming from. Absolutely. I'm with you 100%, Bobby. Um, and I always need to be careful because my colleagues who work in domestic violence sometimes worry when I empathize in the same way that you are, uh, that we're blaming the victim. Um, and I don't think either one of us are doing that. I think what we're doing is really understanding what caregivers are going through. Um, and I think that anything we can do to educate caregivers to understand this is not volitional, like, right. even though it seems like they should remember because you've told them for the hundredth time, I still remember vividly in my practice one time, a patient where the, the, it, it was a husband who kept saying, well, she should do this and she's just not trying hard enough. And, and I couldn't get through to him. And finally I said to him, all right, I want you to stand on this table and flap your arms as hard as you can and fly. And he said, I, I can't do that. And I said, no, I just want you to try. If you tried harder, I'm sure you could do it. Good for you. And, and so we made it a little bit lighthearted, but I said, that's what it's like. Like, she really can't remember. The part of her brain that's involved in memory is just isn't there. And any more than you can fly if you flap your arms hard enough, she can't remember no matter how, she, how hard she tries. 
That is a great analogy. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, I think just as we did, so many caregivers go into this not understanding that it's much more than a, than a memory problem and um, what dementia behavior entails. And that's, that's a large part of the teaching that I put out there. And I imagine um, at least it's a good part of what you do as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we tend to focus on the memory issue. Um, but really, if somebody only has a memory problem, that's amnesia or amnestic syndrome, which is really, really rare. Um, whereas dementia is really, really common. So it's always a memory and something else. And the issue is, what is that something else? And that something else can be judgment and reasoning and visual spatial skills and, you know, math and all kinds of all those other areas of cognition. Um, and we have to not just focus on the memory, but understand it in the context of the rest of the brain and what else is impaired. What I've heard people ask and seen often is, why can't she understand that she has dementia? And my response is, people with a brain disease don't can't understand they have a brain disease. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can't reason with people who aren't reasonable. And people can understand a stroke, you know, and, and, uh, and that their right arm isn't working anymore. And so mom's right arm isn't working anymore. And I understand because... Something happened in her, nothing happened to her arm, but something happened in her brain that controls her arm. But the problem is you can't see judgment. You can't see memory. You can't see reasoning and in visual spatial skills. You can only experience them in behaviors. But it's every bit like having a stroke and you can't move your right arm. That part of your brain that enables you to do some of these higher cognitive abilities gets damaged uh, when you have a dementing illness, and you simply no longer have the capability to do these things. But boy, it sure feels like if they just tried harder, they could do it, because they look fine. Mm -hmm. They look like they did before. And I, I think that's, that's a real disconnect for caregivers. When you see your spouse or your, your parent or whoever it is that you're caring for, and they look okay. And I'm going to use that example you used about the stroke in the arm. Yeah, I, you know, and I think that what you're bringing up is another point that gets also to more existential questions and philosophic questions, which is, who am I married to? If this person has a brain disease that makes them a different person, what does all this mean for our relationship and, and who I am and who they are? And, and, and now what? Um, mm -hmm. So it really leads to very deep questions that I don't think we talk about often enough. Um, and, and when it comes to the kind of abuse situation, the more we can make somebody other, less human, less that person I love, because now they're different, kind of the easier it can become to behave in ways that we aren't as proud of. Absolutely. One of the things I noticed, it said that you were an expert on medical education, curricula design, development, and implementation. Are these some of the things that you're working into these, these classes that you're teaching? Yes. We're working very hard to incorporate more geriatrics into medical education. It's embarrassing but true that medical education, in my uh, opinion, is way behind where we ought to be. Um, you know, we have leftovers and don't get me wrong, I love kids and I think pediatrics is important. But really when you think about it, 
It's a required rotation for medical students nationally. And most physicians will not end up treating kids. But geriatrics is not yet a required. You know, there's components of it that are required, but not in the same way that other, other areas are required. But we're making inroads, and I'm one of the people pushing hard to say we need more and more education about older adults. I'm really proud of what we're doing over at the Keck School at USC in terms of, of geriatrics education. Um, and I think it needs to be also influenced by what older adults believe and think that doctors need to know. Um, that it really needs to be driven by what our future patients want us to know and understand. Um, and so I had a medical student with me just the other day when I was seeing patients, a terrific third-year medical student, and he had an opportunity to, to see and understand, because a lot of people in my practice have, have of dementia, kind of what families are going through. And we were able to talk about that a little bit. And even those little bits of contacts with medical students, I think, can make a profound difference. The other piece is, you know, we, we know that geriatrics is not a popular field for physicians to go into. And we're trying to understand that and encourage more providers to go into this field of, of geriatric medicine. I had an interesting experience when I, I spoke at a um, dementia conference in Toronto a couple of years ago. Most of most of the uh, presenters were working in research, and my presentation was on the uh, the effects of dementia care on the caregiver and the effects, uh, you know, how often caregivers die before the person that they're taking care of. And uh, as I was presenting, I saw these researchers, these physicians sitting up and, and, and taking notice. And one actually came over to me and he said, now I understand why some caregivers are resistant when the person with dementia is being released from the hospital. I never saw it from that perspective. So I'm, going, I'm really appreciative of what you're doing because if doctors are coming up and they're understanding that this affects not only the person with dementia, but the entire family. Absolutely. And my belief, and, and maybe this because I'm a family doctor is, is my primary specialty, is that once I diagnose a patient with dementia, the whole family really becomes my patient. Um, and, um, and I think kind of a, and, and geriatrics is very much a team sport. I don't know enough as a physician to do everything I can on behalf of my patient and the family. And that's why I've got to work with social workers and occupational therapists and speech and language pathologists and physical therapists and pharmacists so that we get all the help and the team together that we need on behalf of this person and their family. And if we don't pay a lot of attention to the family and primarily, you know, the, especially the primary caregiver, um, we're not doing a good enough job in caring for the, the individual who's been identified with this illness. You know, one of the things I've talked about um, a number of times is that you really, as the caregiver, you have to build a partnership with the doctor that, and, and also understand that that doctor has many, many patients and the doctor has time constraints. So you have to kind of bridge that gap of, getting the time and the information and the needs addressed and also be aware of 
the time of the uh, doctor. And it is so important to build that relationship to, to understand. I know Bobby had a great relationship, uh, and I think he was a physician's assistant at the VA, where the, the cooperation and the connection between the two of them was just so dynamic, and it created a very good care team for my father. We were fortunate at that time, um, very early on, I guess, in telehealth, that the VA hospital had provided me with this mini computer, and I could put his vital statistics in there each morning in his weight and um, and his temperature and all of that. Um, and so he had an assigned nurse who would check his records each morning, and he and I would often talk. If he saw something that he had a question, he would contact me and vice versa. And where he really came into uh, assistance was when the doctors weren't necessarily paying attention to, to the caregiver. But if I could have Jason be my go-between, very often um, he was able to uh, make that connection. And he, uh, he said a number of times, you may not be a nurse, but you have become one in this care um, but that connection with that medical professional was such uh, a, a gift for my father-in-law and for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, we really have to respect caregivers as experts for their loved one. Um, and particularly when somebody with a dementia who's unable now to really express a lot to me, I'll turn to the loved one and say, what are you feeling from the, you know, are you feeling like maybe they're depressed or anxious or because you know them so well and um, and really understanding that that caregivers become experts. Um, and so the I, I like the word you use, which is partnership. I work with terrific physician assistants and I think PAs and nurse practitioners uh, just do a bang up job. Um, in in terms of, of uh, providing primary care. Um, and very often, I think both our patients and caregivers will find there might be kind of one member of the team who they particularly connect with. Um, and then the more that that connection can occur and, and that that person can then advocate for you with the rest of the team, the better. And, you know, uh, we're all busy, and, and, and I do think it is scary sometimes when people come in with huge lists <laughs> um, and um, kind of negotiating, um, hey, how long is our visit, and this is what we really have time for today. I'll often ask caregivers to maybe come up with a one or two top priorities they have for that visit, and maybe I'll have one or two top priorities, but coming in with a list of 30 things is just scares me <laughs> and, and it's, not, you know, it's just not doable um you know and at the same time i know sometimes we can be jerks we doctors can be jerks and and that's no fun either um so i think finding somebody who who really cares and knows their stuff um it's worth the search absolutely yeah what the the thing i point out many many times in the presentation is have your most critical things written down. Everything else is a nice to have. <laughs> but what's critical, put it down on paper because that's what you really, really want to remember. And that's what you want to discuss with the doctor. Not get caught up with fluff. 
but what's critical. Right. And and bring it up within like the first 60 seconds. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I can't believe how fast time is going. And I definitely want to talk to you about the Elder Abuse Forensic Center. Yeah. So we should talk about that and maybe also the National Center on Elder Abuse, because the National Center is a great resource for um, for for your listeners. Um you know, even though it has this name, National Center on Elder Abuse, and everybody's afraid, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an abuser. It doesn't mean you're an abuser. But if you go to the website, we have a lot of stuff in there about um, how to how to recognize um, when behaviors are going off the rails and what we can do toward prevention. So it has all kinds of resources and links so that you can look at financial management and and really ways to to provide loving care. Uh, for for the person who you're who you're caring for, the forensic center is um, something um, for kind of the most difficult and oftentimes the most sad cases of abuse and neglect that are going on. Uh, and there we bring a team together that includes you know public guardian and police and um, criminal justice system because sometimes that that's necessary and geriatricians and psychologists and adult protective services and ombudsman. And what we might do, what we not might do, what we do do is go over some of the most challenging cases of abuse and neglect that are going on and trying to see what together as a group we can come up with to intervene. Um, and um, and that's a, a team that meets every week in, in our county. And unfortunately, you know, we're, we've, we are mainly, but not exclusively, dealing with family caregiver, caregivers. We also have, you know, th- those that work in the care homes. But there, are, I sometimes hear very sad reports of somebody going in to visit their loved one in, in a facility and finding them, you know, they've been incontinent for several days and the incontinence garments haven't been changed and, and you know, they're sitting there um Nobody's paying attention to them. And I would imagine that your work also includes places like that, not just. Yes, it does. Um, so you're talking about nursing homes and assisted living and kind of dementia yes. care units and those sorts of things as well. And and yes, um, you know, abuse and neglect can happen there, too. I think it's important for everybody to know, um, as hard as this is for us to imagine, any one of us can be an abuser. And any one of us can end up being abused as well. Um, and and even though those are really harsh terms to use, we need to absorb that a little bit and understand it within ourselves. And then to also understand that this can happen by other people toward our loved ones as well. Um, you know, and uh, whenever I'm going into a situation with a family, I I need to spend some time understanding what prior relationships were like, because this person might seem like a just a really lovely 82-year-old person who, yes, they have Alzheimer's disease, but they're so sweet and everything seems fine. And then when I start digging into the family dynamics, understand that maybe they were abusive toward this daughter who now is being expected to care for her. Um, and what does all that mean and how do they interpret it? And similarly, when they're going into a situation where they haven't been known, they're in a nursing home or in a, a memory care unit, how do those people view this person? Um, do they 
I hate to put it this way, just sort of view them as a piece of furniture that we're going to move around and check out and take care of and, you know, and de really dehumanize them? Or do they understand their personhood and the, their history and who they were? And, um, and you can really get a sense of that. You can get a sense of people's heart related to, to how they care and how they interact. And we have to pay attention to all of those cues um, so that we're alert to the possibility of abuse and neglect. Um, you stated earlier, and before we run out of time, I wanted to circle back uh, to your caregiving story. Well, one of the important lessons I learned is that um, we had everything going for us. Um, sophisticated, I've come from a medical family. Uh, my father was determined to keep my mom at home, which is what we did. Um, and so we knew what we were doing. We had resources. We had help. We all love each other. And it was incredibly hard. <laughs> and so I take that with me to understand now what it's like if any one of those elements is out of whack or if multiple elements are out of whack, how much more difficult it makes it and how important it is that we're there for each other and really try to help and we can sometimes see things coming. We see uh, somebody with Alzheimer's disease who's having these repetitive behaviors and caregivers who seem to be getting annoyed and address it before it escalates. And so I'm very hopeful that despite the fact people with dementia are very high risk for abuse and neglect, that the vast majority of it, majority are things that we can catch early and prevent from happening. And what could we tell a caregiver to watch out for as a warning you're getting to that point and maybe you need to reach out for some help? Some self-awareness about when you're feeling agitated, anxious, you're getting depressed, you might be drinking more, um, you might be self-medicating with pills, uh, you might be using a lot of marijuana. Um, so those things that are signs of anxiety or depression for you, if you're getting short tempered, if you're doing things that you're kind of ashamed of, I, you know, I yelled at my mom or I got really short tempered with her. And so that's self-awareness. And the, the other thing I would say to caregivers is accept help. I think, um, we we're in a society where we really revere caregivers but we don't talk about how to be gracious care recipients. And if you're a caregiver, you also ought to be a care recipient. Let people help you. Let people love you. Let people provide the practical and emotional support that will help you be your best for your loved one. Yeah, you know, I appreciate you saying that. One of the things that people would say to me that, that I had a problem with was, you must be a saint. And my response was, I'm no saint, and my father-in-law would be the first one to agree with me. <laughs> uh, because labeling me as a saint kind of meant that I was somehow above other people, and I'm just one woman, you know, doing a hard thing the best I can. Um, and I also tell people, if, if you know, very often, just to be polite, or, or even if they mean it, people will say, let me know if you need help. And my response now is to tell caregivers, as soon as they say that, you give them a job. And 
It could be just come and sit with your loved one so you can take a shower or pick up a gallon of milk when you go to the store. But there's always something that, some small thing that somebody can do to take a little bit of that off of your shoulders. And I had trouble letting even Mike take over from me because I knew the schedule and I knew exactly what was going on. So that was hard to do. But he was doing the things that, you know, taking the car to be inspected, getting the groceries and, and, and that kind of thing. But some people feel as if we have to say we're fine when anybody asks how we are. And I also tell them, you're not fine. Tell them you're tired. Tell them that you need help. Tell them that you're lonely and you wish they would stop by and spend a few minutes. Um, and, and it is hard to do because, you know, when you're a full-time caregiver, almost every moment of your day is, is accounted for, but you need to take those few minutes just to, just to be with somebody else. Yeah. And, you know, and when somebody calls you a saint, it makes it really hard to then admit that you're having trouble, mm-hmm. you know? Um, <laughs> and so I think um, having that humility and self-awareness to say, I'm not a saint, I'm exhausted. Right. I'm, I'm exhausted, you know, and, and I really agree with, I, with, with asking for help or if somebody offers it. Um, one of the important things for caregivers to do is be really specific. Yes. If you could come over once a month, I'm often like helping my families understand how to be specific. Um, tell them what you need. Um, and hey, if you have three people offering to help you and each can come over once, once a month and do something, that, you know, that's three weeks a month when you're going to get a little extra help. So taking a look at, at what resources are available and saying yes when people offer is a great way to go. We can't expect people to know what we need. It, it's like wives who, you know, they're doing everything, uh, you know, to get a meal on the table and wishing their husband would help rather than saying, I need you to take this off the stove or mash the potatoes or wherever it might be. They don't know what you need. And and it's very similar to those people who we wish they would step up and help, but we don't tell them what we need. Right. And what I find oftentimes is that people start getting angry, like, why aren't they doing more? And And this is when I get into be really specific. Tell them exactly what you need. Uh, and it's fine. It's fine to do that. You're not being bossy. You're just being uh, helpful so that they can help you. There Absolutely. you go. <laughs> well, doctor, it's been an absolute joy having you on the show. Um, I know I learned a good bit. Uh, and I think our listeners have too. Well, it's very kind of you. It was a, it was a real pleasure. And uh, I, I admire what you're doing. And it, it right back at you and uh, maybe we'll be talking to each other again sometime. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, I, I wrote down in my notes, geriatrics is a, is a team sport. And uh, when I hear the word geriatrics, you know, it's almost like they're talking about you, Bobby. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to participate in that. <laughs> well, you know, it's true. <laughs> you know, I, I, I love the analogy uh, uh, when she had the patient who said, if they would just try harder, and she says, well, why don't you flap your wings and <laughs> try to fly? And I think something like that would really kind of make the person step back and go, whoa, and maybe put it in perspective for them. I think that's a great analogy. 
Yeah, and there was humor in it. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I also wrote down, and I think you made note of it too, is that the dementia, it's like having a stroke. The brain is damaged and can't perform that function. Like you can't move your arm or you can't move your leg as it was before. Um, that was also a kind of a good aha for me. See, that's why we do this. Not only do we inform our listeners, but we learn every single time. Yes, indeed. You can find more information about Dr. Mosqueda on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. <laughs>